People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, today on Kidney Talk, we're going to be speaking about a life-saving topic. A lot of people don't know that you can multi-list for a kidney transplant around the country. And today, I'm going to be speaking to Ron Taubin. He's a patient advocate in the community. I've known him for years. He's had a transplant. He knows the ropes. And so he's going to explain to us the process. So welcome to the show, Ron. Oh, thank you. So, Ron, tell us a little bit about your background, about seeking a transplant, and you also had a kidney pancreas transplant. Yes, I was what they used to call a juvenile diabetic, but a type 1 diabetic now, at the age of 11. And I did pretty well throughout the years, and in my mid-30s, I started to uh, have some decrease in my kidney function, and by, um, oh, 1999, I was on the verge of uh, kidney uh, failure and end-stage renal disease. So I listed, and as I was a diabetic, uh, they offered me a kidney pancreas, which I accepted. That was a simultaneous operation at UCLA. I received it in 2001. I was very luckily only on dialysis for one year, which was that. So was it a perfect match, or was it because you needed a kidney and a pancreas? The donor was a 19-year-old man from Wisconsin. It, well, it's a perfect match if it's flown in out of the, out of the area. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so it, was, it, was, it, it just worked really great for me. And, uh, you know, I wrote the family. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get any response, but that's not unusual. It's it's great to be able to just let people know that you appreciate the gift. So tell us a little bit about how you learned about multilisting and what multilisting is. Well, my kidney pancreas lasted eight years, which is the mean average of a kidney from a cadaver uh, donor. And then my pancreas uh, stopped a year later because I was back on dialysis. In California, the weight for a kidney now, blood type O from a cadaver, is somewhere between 10 and 12 years. And is this just in Los Angeles, or is it across the state? Oh, it's, it's, it's Southern California. It's, Southern California is Region 5. Okay, and that's the L.A. area, not including San Diego. Uh, no, San Diego is, a separate, is one separate area, but it includes uh, all the way up to the... Uh, the Oregon border, that would be San Francisco, Sacramento, that's all in, in Region 5. And then Region 5 also includes um, Arizona, uh, Utah, New Mexico, and Nevada. And so how many regions are there in this country? There are 11 regions in the country. Okay. And that was the problem. So, you know, when I decided that I was going to multi-list, and the reason I knew about it, I was uh, I was the Region 5 representative on the UNOS Pancreas Committee, and I was lucky enough to learn about uh, multi-listing while on the committee. So how does multi-listing work? Like, we live in the Los Angeles area, so we get listed at a facility here in the area. 
So tell us, uh, walk us through the process if, you know, somebody lives in Los Angeles and they're getting listed, how could they expand their chances? Okay, what you, what you have to do is, you're right, the first thing you've got to do is get to that stage where your renal function is less than 20%. And, and that's a 20 GFR, correct? Yeah. Okay. and then you go on to, on to dialysis. Well, you know, Ron, let me just clarify something, though, because... You don't have to be on dialysis to be on the transplant list. Oh, no, no. Okay, because a lot of people think you have to start dialysis, and usually it's required like a 20 GFR or below, and people don't go on dialysis till 15. I didn't go on till a 9 GFR. It depends how you feel. Yeah, it depends. If di- if you have diabetes, it might be a little higher. Right. Yeah. It's a little hard on the diabetics, especially the type 1 diabetic. But um, once you're listed, then usually list at a center, assuming we're out in Los Angeles, you know, you have about five centers out here. And then you have to go to your nephrologist. That's the, the main person because you've got to work with him to get him to send referrals. But let me back up a second. Uh, UNOS will allow you to multi-list across the country. And UNOS is a United Network Organ Sharing. We all speak in acronyms, and people are like, well, what is UNOS, and what is ESRDE, and what is all these different topics? UNOS, the United Network of Organ Sharing, is the quasi-governmental agency that maintains the transplant list. Um, you know, where you stand on the list in priority to getting an organ transplant. Um, once you, so once you get on the list, you're listed within your region at a specific hospital. But I still, you know, I took a step back and said, my God, I can't, I can't wait 10 or 12 years. I won't survive because I was a type one. I was back to being a type one diabetic again and diabetics, well, they have a very rough time on dialysis, and, and their longevity on dialysis isn't as good as somebody with something like PKD or polycystic kidney disease. Well, because the diet is so limited when you have diabetes as well. Absolutely. So how does it work? You basically, you know, you go to UCLA or Cedars or USC, and you get listed as you're able to have a transplant. Well, you have to do that first. You have right. to get listed someplace. Now, in my case, after speaking to um, Dr. Danovich at UCLA and knowing the odds, you know, of the length of time, what I suggest to everybody, the first thing you do is go to UNOS, United Network of Organ Sharing website. It's called UNOS, U-N-O-S dot org. And it's a pretty easy system, but you go on and you look at these weight statistics for all of the transplant hospitals in the United States. If you have any problem, you know, um, understanding the statistics, I'm sure, you know, there are groups like, you know, Renal Support Network and TRIO and, and uh, the AAKV that will help you when you need to find out which, you know, which one is, is your best uh, possibility. I went on the, the website and found that uh, the University of Arizona in Tucson had a short website. I went on and found uh, Houston Methodist had a short web, a short wait time, and the third one was Shands in Jacksonville, Florida. And I applied to all three of them. So let me explain um, when you have to apply, though. 
um, this can be very cost prohibitive to people because you have to actually go there, correct? You can qualify that statement a little bit. What I did was I picked one, and the one I picked was um, Houston, a Methodist in Houston. And I went down there for a week, and I got I, all my tests were done down there. And it's a, it's a it's a world famous uh, you know transplant center, and therefore Jacksonville, Florida, and Tucson accepted the testing. And the testing is all paid for by, and I'm assuming most of us had Medicare. They will pay for the cost of testing. The only costs that are not paid are your travel and your living ex- expenses down there. Which can be quite substantial. <laughs> Except the hospitals, uh, the transplant hospitals are changing a little bit. A lot of them realize the expense of people coming in from out of town. And not all of them, but some of them have these facilities available where they will, you know, they can get you rooms for very reasonable amount or if you can't afford it for no amount even. As far as flying, uh, paying the expense, if you can't drive, you have to fly. But um, let me give a plug for TRIO. We have an, an arrangement with United Airlines that if you have to go someplace to um, be evaluated, we can get you free flights for United Airlines. Wow, that's pretty cool. And that's a Transplant Recipients International Organization. And their website is so people can go look them up? What they should do is send an email to S. That's Sam Leach, L-E-A-C-H, at trio, T-R-I-O, web.org. Okay, that's good. That's good information. Yeah, it's, uh, we're only one of 20 charities in the United States that has this ability to do it. And so it, you, you know, it's going to cost something, but with Medicare, and most of us that are on dialysis or have been, have Medicare, and if you're lucky enough to have a supplemental insurance, the costs really go down. If you don't have supplemental, there's that 20% that you have to figure out you're going to have to pay. And there are other ways you can, you know, you can raise money for that 20%. You know, it's a question of outreach. You have to go and see where you can get the 20%. So you received your second kidney transplant and... Well, so tell us about, were you on dialysis? And, you know, that does make it a little bit more complicated because if you're going to be listed at different places, you also have to organize your dialysis when you're being tested in a different location. Right, but that's relatively simple because um, I'll give you a good example. We just sent one of our trio members down to Mayo in um, in Phoenix. He's multi-listing. He's, he's doing what I did because he needs a kidney He's a 15-year liver recipient, but the kidney failed. And that can be due to the medication, right? A lot of the other organs fail because they take a lot of immunosuppressant drugs. Oh, absolutely. So many of the hospitals now across the United States will not accept a uh, an applicant, a kidney applicant, if he's over 70 years of age without a living donor. And the reason they're doing that right now is there's a new allocation in kidneys, which I won't get into in this interview, but they're they're talking about changing the allocation. But George went to Mayo, and he was completely evaluated there, and he's 73 years old. So through multi-listing, he was able to get out of California and get to another place. And they have uh, places to stay down there, and they drove down there. 
So there, there are, you know, there are local local places uh, within the region that you can go to. Now, I would not suggest anybody to list in the same region they live in, because if you list here in Los Angeles, all of the other transplant hospitals get the same supply that... Right. Well, like in, in our region, you wouldn't want to list at, you know, Cedars-Sinai and UCLA. Actually, they forbid it, I believe. You can't double list in your own region. But what I did is I never listed at UCLA, which was my main transplant hospital. I went down and listed at three different regions. But, and I, first of all, I got on the list in Houston. And then I listed at Phoenix, or at Tucson. And then I listed in in Florida. So um, there's a lot shorter weight in these areas, and people will say, why, okay? And unfortunately, the reason is that uh, there are smaller areas, and a lot of these states don't have helmet laws, and they don't have, you know, gun laws. you got to admit, the text in and driving is really helping the organ donation, isn't it? I mean, I guess the message is don't text and drive unless you want to be an organ donor. It's kind of a morbid outlook, <laughs> it is. but, you know, it, this is reality. When I listed years ago for my kidney pancreas, we were told, don't go any place around major holidays because... That's when most of the accidents were happening. Yeah, when they drink and drive. It's it's unfortunate. It is. It's so sad. The helmet law here in California has just reduced it tremendously. Which is wonderful because, you know, you think about it, um, a, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when you receive an organ and there's not as many available because it's usually a head trauma or sometimes a drowning that they resuscitate the person where they can be on life support. And it's not somebody who dies of an, a chronic illness. And so, you know, people like, well, there are a lot of people that pass away in the country, but there has to be a specialized type of criteria to be an organ donor. And unfortunately, head injuries are the most common. <laughs> yes, I, I know. It's, um, it, it, it's Yeah, it's a shame. I always remind people, they're like, I feel so guilty that, you know, I have to wait till somebody passes away to get a, a, a transplant. And I'm like, you know, you could do nothing to prevent their death. That was going to happen no matter what. And, you know, basically the gift of life can be passed on through that person person who chose to make a decision to be an organ donor. So tell us a little bit about, so when you got the call for your transplant, because also there's logistics involved in getting there in a certain amount of time. Right. I was very lucky. I got the call for my transplant six months after I listed. And which one was that? From Tucson. And you live in uh, Southern California, so people will have an idea. How far a drive is that? A drive, it's an eight-hour drive. Okay. But let me tell you what we did, and, and I would suggest this to everybody. When I knew I was listed at the free centers, I found out every flight that went from Los Angeles to Houston to Tucson to Florida. So I had all of that information in hand. And when I got the call, I was at UCLA doing dialysis, and they told me, catch the next flight down. And I was very lucky because I didn't have to start calling everybody. I had a list in front of me, and I, I, had, I saw an airline. And I called it, and I got actually the last seat on that plane, which was really nice. And I went down there, and my wife then drove down that evening because you're going to be there for a little bit, so we needed a car. And that you have to do that. But there's a thing called ischemic time, which we should explain to the, to the listeners. Once the organ is retrieved, there are, they're viable, and especially with the pumping techniques now that they have, 
you can get a kidney that's been, uh, you know, over the ischemic time of 30 hours now. I mean... So that means it's out of the body for 30 hours sitting somewhere in a cooler. So some places, you know, um, you can really take the time to get to where you're going. But you've got to be prepared to go. I mean, um, you've got to have this information at hand when, when the call comes. It's not like here when I got my first call. I drove for an hour and I was at the uh, transplant hospital. Well, now, do you have family in Tucson? Because I know a lot of people actually double list in a place where they have family. So then they have that support around them after the transplant. Because it is. You need some support after the transplant. You can't do this on your own. Let me tell you about Tucson. And the same with Houston and with, with Florida. When I got the call from Tucson, I went down there. My wife came in that night, and she had to stay at a regular hotel. The next day, they arranged for a one-bedroom, fully furnished apartment for her, which I could come out of the hospital and go to. It was in great condition, beautiful section. It was close to the hospital, and the rate was $40 a night if, you could afford it. If you couldn't afford it, it was zero, okay? Oh, wow. They're doing more of these houses and uh, apartments now at different places, and you have to check with each transplant hospital that you call uh, see what their facilities are. Now, one of the things that was interesting is that, you know, when you call a transplant center, it's sometimes hard to get somebody on the phone, but you can send them a lot of information through the website. I know if you go to a website, they're like, would you like to sign up? And you can send some initial information through the email. And I think that helps as opposed to just calling blind. Oh, yeah. Well, what you have to do is I think you have to make one call as it just started off. You have to go get the person at the center who is the pre-transplant coordinator. And you have to talk to them because that's where they do their first evaluation of you as a potential patient. They'll ask you questions and you had better ask them questions also what you need to know. What's your wait time? What's your age limit? and, And everything like that that you need to know. And then they'll ask things. And then after that first call, Then the coordinator will say, if you're a viable candidate, I need this, 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 and this from you, and we need your records, they'll tell you what they need. And they'll give you the email address and the mailing address, and then you have to get it down to them. And let me just say this. If you're in end-stage renal failure right now and you know you're going to go on dialysis, or even if you want to get a kidney before dialysis, you had better get all of your medical records together because that can be a big time-consuming job. I know you have to be cleared by a cardiologist. You have, I mean, there's there's some testing involved. It can be done in a couple of days, but if there's a little glitch or they have a, you know, I think we need further testing on that. And it happened to me when I was being tested for my fourth transplant. I had never known, I, you know, obviously in 1990, I had my third transplant, uh, but I was never tested for hepatitis C. And when I was being, you know, basically worked up for the fourth transplant, they're like, do you know you have hepatitis C? And I'm like, I had no idea. And so I had to go see a liver specialist, and I had to do some other things. And luckily, it turned out that um, with my second kidney back in the early 80s, uh, the kidney came with hepatitis. It was non-A, non-B at the time, but then it, you know, turned out to be hepatitis C. 
and the kidney had so much hepatitis in it, my body recognized it and has warded it off for the last 25 years. So when I saw the liver specialist, like, oh, yeah, you'll never have a problem with hep C, ever. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of scary when you're going through the process and, you know, another test, another doctors, and sometimes it could take several weeks to get in to see a specialist. So you have to be on top of that. You really do. And, and I don't know, I, I hope the people listening realize that when Roy says the testing is extensive, it really is. And it, it, it gets a little frustrating at the time. I mean, most people, uh, most candidates that are, say, over 40 or 50, they will require most of an angiogram and the stress test. You have to get all your immunizations up to date, you know, hep A, hep B, uh, pneumonia. And they're, they're really sticklers to, to, the, to getting all this done. And also, it has to be renewed or evaluated every year. Right. You need to be cleared by the, you know, women need to be cleared by gynecologists. And uh, luckily, I didn't need an angiogram, but I needed a stress test. And, you know, you need to be cleared by the dentist. And you need to be cleared by just about everybody. And if you have dental problems, that is the biggest issue because your mouth is such a source of infection when you get a transplant. They won't transplant you. That's right. So, um, you know, brush those teeth and floss every night, huh? Very important. And, you know, um, remember that article? I, I think I, I think you published it in your paper that I wrote on multi-list. Yes, if you go to um, rsnhope.org and type in Ron Taubin, um, T-A-U-B-M-A-N, um, it will pop up. But it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So you got the kidney in Tucson, and um, so how was the outcome afterwards? Well, I, I got a, a kidney from a 75-year-old woman donor, and everybody says, oh, 75 years old. But she was in perfect condition. Uh, she was 75, but she had a pre-retrieval creatinine of 0.05, which for people on dialysis and Waiting for kidney, they know that's very good. That's very good. Mine's 0.7. <laughs> that, well, that's not bad. <laughs> uh, her gross renal function was 80%. Wow. She was very thin, which is good. She worked out every day of her life. Uh, she was a very religious woman also, so there was no you know, probability of risky, uh, risky lifestyle. And she died while she was jogging, tripped hit her head on the curb and had a massive hemorrhage, which is a, a sudden traumatic death, which, you know, I, I, I hate to say it now, it, it's the best type, it's not really, it's the best type of uh, passing for a transplant recipient. And everybody turned her kidney down in California. She died in, um, in San Diego because of her age, even before they retrieved it. But in, in Tucson, they specialized this in, I got a call, and they said, this is a great kidney, and I, I took it. It's been three years now, and I'm doing great. So what's your creatinine today, Ron? Oh, it runs about 1.2 to 1.4. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I don't even, I, I get my results, but I've never worried one day in my life about how long a kidney will last or the pancreas and everything. You just got to enjoy each day. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting, she was 75. Was she considered an extended criteria kidney? She was. And can you explain what that is? Okay, an extended criteria kidney is a kidney that's less than perfect. And when I say less than perfect, it's not a perfect match. It's, um, it may have, the donor may have had a type 2 diabetes, 
may have had a little hypertension, things like that that take it out of the criteria of being perfect. And then these in the past were, were discarded. Uh, a terrible figure that I quote all the time, and, and I hear it all the time, I sit on the kidney committee now, is that we throw 6,000 or we discard 6,000 kidneys and livers a year because by the time they go around the system, they're, they're not viable anymore. But these can be used, I mean, and we're now switching within UNOS the protocol of using these kidneys. We're not calling them extended criteria anymore. They're going to be called, um, well, within, with the kidneys, it's going to be the top 20% of the kidneys in condition go to the top 20% candidates, and the remaining 80% will go to the remainder of the people. They're trying to get the longest uh, time period of uh, longevity of each kidney. Well, you know, that leads to a good point because, you know, both of us are advocates in the community and, you know, people listening like, you know, I don't understand what they're saying. How do I get, you know, the, the thing is, is to get involved and help people create the policies. And Can you tell us a little bit about um, your advocacy work before we wrap up? Okay, well, real quickly, you know, I've, I'm the president of the local trio chapter and we do basically support uh, and education for people that are candidates and those wait, having received their kidney and their pancreases. We handle everybody in hearts, lungs, and livers. It's basically a support group. We keep them aware of what's happening. Same thing, actually, what you do, Laurie. I mean, I've been to your seminars. They're great. You educate the people that are on dialysis. And um, in the past, I've I've been working with um, a lovely lady named um, Nicole Mendez Pinkerton, and we started a program, or she started a program, where we go into dialysis centers to educate uh, the candidates and the patients about living donation and transplantation, and they become far more aware and proactive. Right. You have to be proactive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I found out in, in working with a lot of the um, patients or doctors, that most kidney patients know more about the disease than the first-year residents to come in. No, it's so true. You have to be knowledgeable to survive. Absolutely. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to keep up with what's going on. Well, and I think the biggest misconception sometimes I hear people is they think, oh, I get a transplant and I'm cured. And you're not. Unfortunately, we're chronically ill for the rest of our lives and we're going to have to take medication. We're going to need treatment. And so, you know, basically transplantation is the best treatment option in my opinion. But, you know, it takes work, and you have to take care of yourself, and you have to take medication twice a day. You have to stay on top of your blood pressure, your appointments, and you can live a great life. It just takes a little bit extra work. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, working in the dialysis centers every so often, I run into a man or woman that is back on dialysis because they were... They weren't taking the medication as prescribed. It's Doesn't that make you just, uh, oh, it makes me crazy because I'm a professional pill taker. And I, you know, I never forget my medication. And anyways, it's so important. Um, but, you know, thank you, Ron, so much for sharing information about, you know, uh, for the people listening, you know, go out, be active, go to the website, unos.org, and find out the wait times. You know, there are a lot of people out there to help you and just, you know, 
keep searching till you find the answer. Yeah, I hope they check your website and if they can read that article, it's in a logical order. Maybe it'll help them when they if they're considering multilisting. That's terrific. Well, thank you, Ron, for being such an incredible advocate for people with kidney disease and their families. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 